0: This is Paul Adamson, and welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of my online magazine, Encompass. I chat informally with personalities from a wide variety of backgrounds on a wide variety of subjects. If you like this podcast, you can go to the magazine's website, encompass-europe.com, or any of the main platforms for free access to all the podcasts to date. I hope you enjoy this conversation. My guest is Alec Ross. Alec Ross is a Distinguished Visiting Professor at Bologna Business School of L'Università di Bologna, and before that worked in the Obama Administration for four years as Senior Advisor for Innovation to Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. His latest book is called The Raging 2020s, Companies, Countries, People, and the Fight for Our Future. Uh, This is a pretty uh, cool and forensic analytical uh, survey of what's wrong with the world at the moment, uh, Alec, what struck me also reading your book that you seem almost quite angry about how things are at the moment. It, was this anger or at least frustration uh, a, a motivation for writing the book in the first place? I don't feel like I was
1: angry um, in writing it, but what I what I saw was a lot of rage, you know, hence, hence the title, The Raging 2020s. What I perceived was a lot of rage in the wider world. And so what I sought to do with this was to sort of diagnose what's at the heart of that rage what's at the base of the rage but hopefully beyond just the diagnostic work also offering a little bit of light in the
0: darkness okay well uh, most people most organizations most systems come under come under um, attack frankly by by your in your analysis and you seem to give short shrift to to the corporate world obviously to governments political parties but even to even to organized labor let me start first maybe with with corporations i mean corporations have been around for quite some time do you think there's a now an inflection point where their, their behaviors become in your view even more egregious uh, and uh, inimical to the kind of the public good
1: so what i think is that one of the byproducts of globalization is that large multinational companies have taken on the power of states amazon is a country Facebook is a country, Google is a country, Apple is a country, and their CEOs are more powerful than lots of the presidents and prime ministers of countries around the world. And so what I what I believe here is not so much that their behavior is growing more egregious, but rather that as they've grown more powerful, we've failed to govern them. Uh, And so now, for all intents and purposes, a corporation can sort of customize its social contract. It can avail itself of the the labor and environmental uh, markets of China, the capital and research markets of the United States, the tax havens of dodgy islands in the Caribbean. So what I believe is that as companies become as powerful as countries, we need to exert some democratic consent into their operations so that they don't grow too powerful
0: have things got worse in in the, in the relatively recent past because big business the the, the clues in the name has always been big business for at least over a century and attempts sure. to, especially in your country in the US to to kind of uh, to impose regulation to kind of uh, to affect their their margin of maneuver should we say
1: no the answer the short answer Paul is yes so globalization has been accelerated for has been accelerating for a few decades now and as globalization has Grown further, reaching so too have the has the power of these big companies, and yes, they're big, big been big companies in the past, but they more often than not have been subsidiary to the nation state. So even the you know the large mercantilist companies of you know the Dutch East India's Company, the British East, you know these these companies were enormous. The Hudson Bay Company of the United Kingdom occupied most of Canada and effectively governed Canada for a period, but they were all subsidiary to state power. The difference today, first of all, is in their global reach. And second of all, in their in what I perceive to be the lack of power over them from, from and by states, unless you're a Chinese company operating in China, uh, for the most part, you are you are transcending the reach of the state more often than not
0: right and are there particular sectors of the, of the economy where corporations act in a particularly uh, in your view pernicious way or is it is it across the whole corporate world
1: well you know the first thing that i would say is you know again it's very easy to put a black hat over the head of corporations but let me just reinforce a point paul that it's our job to govern these companies they are maximizing shareholder view because shareholder value, because that is what they are wired to do. But we enable that behavior. Okay, so we shouldn't just curl into the fetal position and whine and cry about corporate power uh, without actually doing anything about it. Now, specific to what sect- to what sectors are sort of the, the worst actors. You know, a lot of the focus right now is on tech. I would actually argue that financial services remains the most malignant actor, because what financial services does, particularly with tax havening, is it enables all sectors to domicile their operations in places where they don't have to pay tax. I mean, you know, a lot of what I get into with, I think, some real depth and analysis in the book is the degree to which the world's largest and wealthiest companies and individuals avoid tax. And the financial services sector is the one that to this day enables that more than
0: any other. Well, you say that the political system is there to regulate the context in which corporations operate. Why have then, in your view, governments, both on your side Atlantic and this side in Europe, been so ineffective in dealing with the issue?
1: Because of corporate capture of government. So I'll give two examples, one of tech in the United States and one of financial services in the UK. So I describe it the city. So the city Uh, for those listeners who don't know, is sort of the representative body in both geographic and institutional of the financial services sector in the United Kingdom. And the United Kingdom really domiciles the world's worst tax havens. And the reason why the United Kingdom domiciles the world's worst tax havens and enables this to go on and on and on and on is because of the degree to which the British financial services sector has effectively taken over much of the UK government. If you look at who the ministers are in government, ministers and former ministers in the UK government, there's often a very soft landing for a former minister in a UK financial services company. And if you look at a lot of the people who are in positions of real power, they've come through that sort of good old boys, Eaton, Harrow, Oxford financial services circle that dominates power there. In the United States, I think that the tech sector has held uh, has had a too strong a grip on American political processes. And I think there it's less about money. Interestingly, it's more about money, I think, with financial services in the UK and within the United States, though, I think it's largely because people have uh, for the longest time admired and frankly really liked these companies. Americans love Amazon, Americans love Google, Americans love Apple, Americans are robust users of Facebook and Instagram. So it's been difficult to dislodge the power of companies where hundreds of millions of people use and love their services.
0: Well, that maybe that I won't talk about financial services. Although I'm sure some banks would say in the UK post Brexit they don't feel particularly influential when it comes to the British government at the moment. But moving on to the your US example, is that part of the problem though? Is it's not as you say it's not just corporate capture of the political system in the United States, but also the fact that many of these these companies are consumer good consumer services and they're very popular, and therefore it would be by definition unpopular of the government to regulate too strongly.
1: Yeah, so I think there's a very, so I think there are two issues here to unpack. First of all, you, nobody wants their Google taken away from them. Nobody wants their iPhone taken away from them. And nobody wants their Facebook or Instagram taken away from them. And in most cases, these are free services. Uh, I say free between quotation marks because, of course, the value in many respects is in is in your personal data. But the vast majority of the three hundred and twenty million odd Americans don't think about the economics behind their ability to freely use things like Facebook and Google. So I think that's one issue. I think the second issue is complexity. It's actually very difficult once you get into the arcana of how to regulate these companies. Amazon is very hard actually to argue as a monopoly um, because if you actually strip down the data, what you see is that it's actually in a very competitive e-retailing uh, area. It's hard to argue that Facebook is a monopoly because there are lots of other forms of social media. WhatsApp uh, competes against lots of other messenger services. So what it is, is it's extremely broad, but it doesn't actually own a vertical. It's actually easier to argue that Google, among them, is the true monopoly. But within each of these, there is complexity. And it's not always obvious to policymakers who tend not oftentimes to be very technology literate, what specifically to do about it.
0: Well, since you mentioned tax havens uh, and obviously tax uh, evasion, how optimistic are you that things might change in the foreseeable future? Or, or are we condemned to a situation where large corporations, through this maybe convenient alliance between the financial sector and, and big business, manage to carry on avoiding paying a, a fairer share of their tax liabilities?
1: So I'm short of optimistic. I'll say I'm hopeful. Okay. Uh, I would love to, I would love to get to the point of actually being optimistic. I do give a lot of credit to. Um, you know, for all the criticism of the Biden administration, I give a lot of credit to Janet Yellen, um, our Secretary of Treasury, and her team, who, working with their counterparts at the OECD, have established a framework now shared by 136 countries for a global a global minimum corporate tax. I think this is incredibly important. Am I optimistic? No. Am I hopeful? Yes. And I do think that even though tax policy is incredibly boring and complex, it's also extremely important and in many respects is a sort of skeleton key for unlocking a lot of the necessary resources to effectively rewrite our
0: social contract. There seem to be signs, but correct me if I'm wrong, of some kind of progress, now, whether it's in the OECD or other fora, that finally some logjam has been, has been broken.
1: Yes. No, I mean, there there's unquestionably been progress. And the hope, frankly, is that there will be an EU directive uh, during the French term uh, in the first six months of 2022. So, you know, in my own conversations with senior Treasury Department officials, they really hope that the French election does not distract and detract from the ability of the French to drive uh, a meaningful process through the first quarter of 2022 so there's absolutely been momentum and in fact something could happen in the early months of 2022
0: do you think part of the problem is that uh, real people citizens don't appreciate the just the extent of, of the of the phenomenon and what could be done with all those in fact tax dollars as you guys would call it
1: well no no lesser an intellect than Albert Einstein called the income tax the most complex the most complex pl- puzzle in the universe. Uh, I, I think that tax policy is incredibly complicated. People don't understand it. They just they just sort of ball their fists up and you know rail against paying tax. And part of why I wrote about it so extensively, and I hope excessively uh, in the raging 2020s, is to help people understand actually what's behind all of this. You know, what can be done to create a more just tax system.
0: And the role of, of, of corporations more broadly beyond the tax issue, Alec. Um, I'm trying to get a handle based on, the, on your book, where, where you stand, I mean, you say they are that they are bigger than governments, in many cases, bigger than states. Uh, they act like they are they don't need to be constrained in any shape or form by by national or even international regulation. But at the same time, they do obviously clearly, we're, we're not being too naive here, naive here, they do bring benefits to society. So that we have to find a way to to make sure that we kind of harness and marshal the, the, the to be fair, the very positive contribution that the corporations bring to society, no?
1: No, that look, I mean, I think you just expressed my point of view quite well. <laughs> I I think that's exactly it. Look, I think that capitalism, I think capitalism is far better than any other, than any other form of economics. Uh, You know, I I do not believe in sort of naive, utopian socialist models of of growth and governance. They don't work. Um, And I don't believe they ever will work so long as humans are humans and not ants. However, within our capitalism, a capitalism left entirely unto itself is a capitalism that runs amok, with the likes of Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, being able to amass personal fortunes of more than $200 billion. That's a capitalism that in my view doesn't really work. A capitalism in which the top 1%, if you're flipping a coin, it's sort of heads I win, tails you lose, Mm. uh, is a capitalism that doesn't really work. So I'm not in favor of the destruction of capitalism. What I am in favor of is making the necessary interventions within our capitalism to regulate power And to make sure that its benefits are more equitably distributed. I think that, you know, I'm not one who believes that every billionaire is a policy failure. But I do believe that the degree to which 1% of the world rules the world and in a world where people can have net worths of over 50, 100, 200 billion dollars and not pay tax, I do believe that
0: that's broken. Well, in case uh, I think you think I'm maybe making you talk too much about the West, you do, when it comes to China particularly use the phrase, uh, or I think, authoritarian capitalism. Uh, that's obviously a competing version of capitalism and quite a maybe quite a felicitous combination of two different regimes which come together and work pretty well. So what, what is your analysis of, of, the, of the Chinese way of doing business and is it sustainable?
1: So to the question of its sustainability, what I would say is that the Chinese state uh, defined as authoritarian, unified, I mean, look, we're going on 2000 years of that model. There are different times at which the the effectiveness of that model have waxed and waned. But the model has largely remained true through, you know, however many hundreds of emperors to the present emperor, Xi Jinping. Uh, so I think that the model is sustainable. The degree to which the 1.3 billion citizens of, of China benefit or don't benefit from that model can go up and down. What is, what is proven true is that over the last few decades, they've benefited from enormous economic growth. But what's unfortunately happened really, I think, in the last five to seven years is a clamping down on freedoms, which we wouldn't tolerate in the West but which I do believe the Chinese citizens will mostly accept. And when, you, and when that model of authoritarianism and control is supported by a surveillance state that has 300 million surveillance cameras, 300 million surveillance cameras and data analytics that make you know, Britain's CCTV look medieval by comparison, it makes it very difficult to imagine anything different. Uh, And what the Chinese are doing very clearly right now is optimizing for stability and the longevity of that system. And whenever anybody, whenever any individual or institution steps out of line, it doesn't matter how powerful you are. We saw this in the earliest days of Xi Jinping's reign, where he took arguably the second most powerful person in China, Bo Zhilai, and brought him to heel. And then most recently with Jack Ma, Jack Ma, a a sort of celebrity billionaire success, you know, in many respects, sort of the Jeff Bezos of China. Xi Jinping crushed him with his boot heel. And so in so doing proved that there is no institution or no individual greater than the state model in China.
0: As a small side point, maybe for the, for the interest of our listeners, um, you, you say in passing when talking about China, there are over 100 billionaires in the Chinese governing party, only a mere 250 millionaires in the US Congress. I mean, my first question is, how on earth did you manage to track that statistic down?
1: Yeah, so I mean, the, 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 the data is actually not hidden, because okay. in many respects, if you look at the composition of the Politburo, if you look at the composition of uh, the formal governing institutions within China, the individuals are, all, are largely also owners of the largest companies in China. Uh, they're major stakeholders and equity holders in Western equities and Western companies where that ownership is transparent. So this, But this goes to an even more important point, Paul, which is that the distinction between business and government in China is a distinction without meaning. They are a unified whole. And if you look at long-term strategic plans, like the 2030 plan for artificial intelligence, you can see an integration between public and private sectors that would never be possible in the West. And I'm not saying this is a good thing or a bad thing. What I'm saying is that it's an interesting thing. And it does show the degree to which the distinction between public power and private power in China is a distinction without
0: meaning. Okay, before we come to the end of this, we are getting quite close to the end already. We've kind of done the corporate world, both in the West and further afield. We've kind of done politics and political systems. But you also take a part at organized labor and trade unions in your book, which I was quite surprised by. Uh, you seem quite disparaging, certainly in the United States context of the, of the kind of record. Of, of success of, of, of trade unions in the United States, are there signs that, they, that they're getting better at what, they, what they, of their role in society is or not?
1: Well, first of all, let's, let's I wanna be a little bit more specific here. I'm critical of labor unions in the United States and the UK, but I, and in Mediterranean Europe, so France, in, France Spain, Italy, but very complementary of the labor movements in Central and Northern Europe. And part of what I try to do in the Raging 2020s is point to is point all of us toward examples of how labor can be smart, strong and effective. Yeah, I worked on a beer truck shoulder to shoulder with union laborers and pushed them up uh, as a janitor working with union laborers. They play an indispensable role and making sure that capital is not sacrificed at the altar of cap- that that capital does not sacrifice labor on the altar. But what I believe is that unions as they exist today in the United States, UK and Mediterranean Europe are ineffective. Um, and juxtaposed with Central and Northern Europe, uh, you can see that I think it's damning by comparison because I do believe that the models of, of labor participation and in governance of, of corporations in Central and Europe, in Central and Northern Europe is highly effective. So part of what I am trying to do is not just criticize unions for the purpose of criticizing unions, but to say, hey, let's, let's, get, let's come up with models for labor movements for the 2020s and let's look to Central and Northern Europe for inspiration.
0: Okay, well, to finish this great chat off, Alec, uh, I want to ask you, this is a call for a a new social contract, and it's pretty evident throughout the book. You're the kind of Jean-Jacques Rousseau of the 21st century. What do you mean by a new social contract?
1: So, sure, a social contract is that which tries to create a measure of equilibrium in the relationship between governing, the governing, government, the governed, people, and business And when Rousseau and Locke and Hobbes and others wrote about this, they just wrote about the relationship between government and people. I think that to think about the social contract in the 2020s, you have to include companies in all of this. And in the same way in which industrialization was made to work in the mid 19th century, because alongside technological innovation that enabled labor to move from farm to factory, from country to city, we had to also innovate within our public policy and put things like a minimum wage child labor laws, pensions, free public education, in alongside uh, our innovations with technology to make industrialization work, so too do I believe that as we transition from a dominantly industrial-based economy into a technology-rich knowledge-based economy, we need to also innovate within our public policy. I don't know about you, Paul, but I have three teenage children and it's very unlikely they're gonna have a single employer for 25 or 30 years, and at the end of it, get a pension. Mm. Uh, so pensions were great in the 19th and 20th century, but they're proving to be rather thin mm. in the in the oh, present yeah. context. So what's the pension of the 2020s and beyond? Uh, what are labor protections in a world of contracting gig employees? We need, I think, to, in the same way in which technology seems to be sprinting forward, Our public policy needs to sprint forward to keep pace with it. And in so doing, rewrite our social contract so that as we innovate technologically, a a larger number of people can benefit from the wealth and well-being that it creates.
0: Well, we have to leave it there. Uh, Alec Ross, thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you for having me.